Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here today with an author who has written a fascinating book. And his name is Jerry Finnan, and the book is about a Helderberg icon. Many of our listeners are familiar with Dr. Anna Perkins. So welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you for bringing her to life in Um, such detail. I'd love to just start by hearing how you came up with this idea. Why did you write this book? Well, uh, of course, Dr. Perkins was our family physician when I was young. And then uh, as I grew into adulthood, I I got to know her a bit better through the Rensselaerville Ambulance and uh, other other encounters. Uh, But uh, I had always considered her to be uh, someone who was just a fascinating person. And I never really understood how she became the iconic person that she was in the Heldebergs in terms of her background, because she was a bit reluctant to to reveal very much about herself. And uh, back in maybe 2013, I was with some friends uh, in Rensselaerville. Uh, I was on vacation, and uh, we were having a beer, and uh, we just started talking about our memories of Dr. Perkins. And it really uh, got me thinking, uh, maybe it was the time to... uh, try a biography of her because most of the people who knew her best were fast fading from the scene, you know, the people who were already in their 80s and 90s. So uh, I wasn't sure if it was feasible, but uh, when I got back to the University of Hawaii, which is uh, where uh, I was working at at the time, I uh, went uh, online and discovered a few articles about written by her mother. And those were fascinating because they made references to her childhood. And then uh, there was a a gentleman from uh, Camp Cass in Rensselaerville who uh, used to have Sunday afternoon conversations with her. And he did that for about eight years and compiled a, a manuscript that one of my sister's friends, April Austin, had. And so I took a look at that, and there were some very tantalizing clues. And so uh, I still wasn't sure what would be available or what would be possible. It wasn't as if I came across a trunk of papers. But uh, little by little, the pieces started to uh, come together. And then uh, I just made a call from out of the blue to Harvard Law School, which is where I discovered her nephew was teaching. And uh, they said that uh, Professor Mansfield had retired uh, and wasn't doing too well, but that I could contact his wife by email. And so the secretary at Harvard Law School gave me that, and I I just wrote a a note uh, saying I was uh, embarking on this project. And they were not only supportive, but very helpful by putting me in touch with a couple of nieces in California. Uh, So it was... A combination of things, but uh, as I got into it, I'd have to say, uh, and I'm not saying this just because I'm I'm here today, the Altamont Enterprise was an essential part of this, primarily because it's the only source I know of that details what was happening in the hill towns uh, back to the early 1900s, and so the fact that through the Gilderland Library one could access that from anywhere in the world and search by name 
made it extremely helpful in terms of just getting a sense of what her life was like, what it was like when she arrived. Uh, You know, there are some other good newspapers that I use to a lesser extent. Uh, The Boston Globe was helpful. The New York Times was helpful. But uh, it was really the Altamont Enterprise that was the core of of the story in those those early years. Uh, and then I found some family papers at the University of California, Santa Barbara. So I uh, stopped there and spent a couple of days just poring over this uh, rich archive of material from the Ward Perkins family. And it turned out there were 60 letters that... Uh, young Anna Perkins as a 14-year-old and 15-year-old girl had written from London back to Boston. To her grandfather. Yeah, to her grandfather. And that was like a gold mine, really. So it wasn't as if I sat down and had a blueprint and laid everything out on the table uh, in advance. Uh, It was a more iterative process. And uh, then, of course, a huge number of people in Westerlo and Rensselaerville helped. Uh, I called, you know, former state troopers. I I talked to a lot of former patients. I talked to a, a nurse that worked with her for many years, uh, June Sherman. Uh, Bob Diedrich, who ran the store in Westerlo for many years, was also essential. And I must have talked to him. He's down in Florida now for about eight hours on the phone. But he was just uh, full of detailed information that really was helpful. So uh, it was like a detective uh, story in some ways. I was going to say, yeah. you're Sherlock Holmes, and what's so wonderful about the book is you have this meticulous sort of literary paper research going on, and you layer it in with these personal reminiscences, including your own, that just um, make her come to life in a way that a more academic book wouldn't. But before we delve into her life, which is, of course, going to be the heart of our conversation, i just like to take a little side trip on your life so people understand who you are. And from the book, it sounds like she was kind of instrumental because she recommended you for the Peace Corps. And that kind of set the course of your life in some way. So just tell us a little about who you are before we delve back into Dr. Well, um, you know, I I was born in Albany, but uh, grew up in Rensselaerville, went to Greenville Elementary School and Greenville High School. Um, Rensselaerville was a a fantastic place to be raised. I always think I was so fortunate in that regard. Yes, uh, because the book gives a real sense of that. You know, you have a sense of identity in your town and who the figures were, not just the doctor, but the fire chief and these various people that those of us with um, more suburban upbringings don't have. That, I think, is the richness of growing up in the Heldebergs. And uh, there were all sorts of fascinating characters, people uh, who had great wisdom and who were willing to uh, talk to a young kid um, and then uh, the volunteer organizations in Rensselaerville were also very important to me. So uh, the fire company, the volunteer ambulance, the library, you know, those are the institutions that really uh, make uh, villages work uh, for, for everyone and, and just make the quality of life so rich. So uh, after uh, growing up in Rensselaerville, I, I went to SUNY Albany, the University at Albany, as it's now called. And uh, when I finished, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but the Peace Corps was something that was attractive to me because I just thought that I needed to broaden my horizons a little bit, and I hadn't traveled really very much outside of New York State. Uh, So I asked Dr. Perkins if she would write a letter of recommendation for me. 
for my application. And it was a very, it wasn't an easy thing. It was an eight page or nine page kind of application uh, recommendation form. And uh, she said, sure, she would. And uh, then once I uh, was accepted and, and got through my training, I was in the northern Philippines, and she started writing to me. And uh, it was just uh, an incredible thing to think that she would take time out of her extremely busy schedule to write these two- and three-page uh, letters uh, about what was going on back home. And they were very welcome because I was a really homesick uh, Rensselaervillian. And that sort of launched your career, correct? Yes, that's right. So so the next 30 years were really devoted to working in the Asia-Pacific region. I came back and uh, studied uh, in the Southeast Asia program at Cornell and then got a one-year appointment at the East-West Center uh, on the University of Hawaii campus in Honolulu. And that one year turned into 30 years. So I've only recently uh, come back uh, a few months ago. And you're teaching at Cornell now. And then I'll be teaching at Cornell in the fall, yeah, getting ready for my classes right now. Well, now we can plunge into Dr. Perkins' <laughs> life. So you can't, in this podcast, put her life in a nutshell, but if you could just kind of describe the arc of it, because what I found so astounding, and I only saw her at the distance, I didn't know her, um, but by the time... I arrived here. She was an elderly woman, hugely admired in the community, but I had no sense of her Boston Brahmin roots or her sort of uh, pedigree <laughs> uh, of her family. So if you could just kind of give us the arc of her life as, as you've described well, it. Well, uh, as far as I know, very few people had any sense of what her her pedigree was or how her uh, how she was a descendant of uh, Charles Carroll of Carrollton or a descendant of Benjamin Franklin uh, or really from one of the most uh, illustrious and distinguished families in in Boston uh, almost every single institution in Boston is connected with the Perkins family in some way uh, and some of them continue to thrive, the Perkins Institute for the Blind, for example. Uh, their connection with Harvard University uh, was uh, over, over centuries, really. Uh, but uh, she didn't want all of that to really be known. I think she, she wanted to just be seen as, as an individual. So she came from this illustrious background, uh, already speaking five languages, uh, and probably one of the best... Uh, reared and educated women in America uh, and had uh, the idea in mind that she wanted a country life. And I think she was drawn uh, during her college years uh, to uh, the works of Emerson and Thoreau. And uh, when she had the opportunity to come to the Heldebergs, she just found Westerlo, Rensselaerville, Bern, Greenville, to be far superior to the other places she had lived, such as Boston or London or New York, and uh, said, this is the good life here, and there's some, so there are some practical skills that I, I have, and uh, I'd like to devote my life to this. And, and as we all know, that's what she, she really did. Uh, but uh, what I see in terms of her, her life is if you look at what she was doing as an undergraduate at Radcliffe. So she had already studied at a convent school in London. Uh, she was already a very erudite person, to be sure. And she was involved in everything. So she was captain of the Harvard basketball team. She played uh, 
field hockey. She was in the Catholic club, the French club, the choral club. I mean, the list is amazing. All the while doing a degree in chemistry because she realized that was important for medicine. Uh, and uh, then she, she got to Columbia's College of Physicians and Surgeons because she was not as a woman allowed to even apply to Harvard Medical School, even though her family had given endowed chairs and given them buildings and so forth. So she went to Columbia and uh, did very, very well there, graduated with honors, uh, but little by little started to narrow her focus so that by the time she got to Westerlo, it was really about being a physician, uh, spending uh, as much time as she could afford with nature and uh, becoming uh, a local Heldeberg person. I think those are the things that she really focused on. So uh, as far as I know, she never played basketball in the Heldebergs. Uh, she, she, she continued to snowshoe. Right, she continued to snowshoe. Uh, she didn't, even uh, in, in church, you know, she, she was never a, a reader or she never was a Eucharistic minister. Uh, she, she narrowed her focus to say medicine is what's needed and what I do well. And uh, in, in free time, she worked uh, uh, with uh, Suzanne Langer a little bit on some of her books. Uh, so she continued to read, continued to listen to classical music, all of those kinds of things. Uh, but I would say uh, 85 to 95 percent of her time was really devoted to caring for the people of the Heldebergs, never turning away a patient, never sending out a bill in 65 years. Yeah, that part was astounding, her um, dedication to service, but also her, she said in one quote there, I wasn't after fame or fortune. I mean, the idea that she didn't really pay attention to money at all, that it was just kind of this peripheral thing. And there was also a section where you looked at Rensselaerville and you described it almost as a caste system. You might have even used that word, where you know that there were these very upper crust um, summer people mm-hmm. And actually, she came there because of this notice from Mr. Hike, and yet she never made herself out to be part of an upper crust. She, you know, had friendships that went through <laughs> all, all levels of a society without kind of even acknowledging or recognizing that sort of a caste system. I, I think she avoided that. She obviously yeah. could have been at the apex of... Uh, Rensselaerville Society and gone to all of the high teas and gone to all of the cocktail parties and those things. Uh, she knew how to play that scene very well, but uh, that wasn't who she was or what she thought was important. And so she uh, would generally avoid those kinds of social invitations, or if she went, she'd go for five minutes, say hello to people, and then depart. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, she just saw what was important in her life. And uh, being part of that caste system or being part of that social scene meant very little to her. And another thing um, that surprised me, I had falsely assumed that she might be described as a feminist (laughs) because here she was, someone who was stymied from going to Harvard Medical School, even applying, as you say, graduated from Columbia, did her residency by all accounts very well, uh, but it wasn't like Bellevue was going to be hiring her, and struck out, and I even got thinking about the Hilltown doctors. There's Dr. Mack now, there's Dr. 
um, Emily, there was Dr. Smith, all women. Mm. <laughs> and I had thought of her without knowing anything about her as someone who must have been a feminist to have struck out on her own and to have come to this sort of wild territory, many people without plumbing or electricity in their homes. But really, your book makes very, very clear that she was not. And when she gave a speech, or maybe it was a written account, I can't remember, years later to her class and describing the life of a country doctor, she used he, not she. And she made a statement at the end (laughs) that made me gasp when I read it that, um, really... This was a sort of unusual circumstance and not to be pushed for the future. So what do you make of all that? Well, uh, that was also new to me. I mean, I, uh, Dr. Perkins was not the kind of uh, individual that you would go up to and, and approach and say, are you a feminist? Uh, uh, but uh, it became increasingly clear to me uh, as, I, as I got into the research that uh, she considered she was by inclination, quite conservative, and considered her case to be a special case of, uh, of, a, of a woman who had gone on to have a professional career. So she did think that uh, women should be the exception in medicine. Uh, and as we now know, more than 50% of the medical students in, in, yeah. in uh, <clears throat> medical school are, are, are women. Uh, I would say, on the other hand, uh, that she was always open to arguments to the contrary. Women in a far different light than women today would would see themselves. Uh, The other thing I guess I would say about that is uh, that over over time, she proved for many other women what was possible. So in some ways, she was an exemplar of a feminist because she led the life that she wanted to lead based on her own hard work and convictions. And so I think many women looked up to her or looked up to some of her, her colleagues and said, wow, you know, if I can uh, live a life like Dr. Perkins, wouldn't that be a, a wonderful thing? And I think she would have encouraged that. Um, she wanted to be known as a physician, not as a lady doctor. Yes, that that's very clear in your book, and good for her on that point. Um, <clears throat> There are just so many things in the book that surprise you, both, or me as a reader, both in terms of how quickly not just medicine changed, but you have like an arc of the changing culture in the Hilltowns. I mean, when she arrived in 1928, which doesn't seem that long ago, mm-hmm. just in terms of yeah. human life, she was dealing with a, a very rural agrarian society um, and felt, as you describe her, not wanting to force sort of modern public health views on people for fear of alienating them, but yet being very concerned with sort of raising standards of living where she could and working within the culture she found herself in. And then by the time she was the icon in her 90s, so much had changed about the Hilltowns. Do you have any thoughts on what part she had in that or how that evolved? Well, uh, she certainly believed that uh, individuals should, should make their own choice. And so she was someone who was very reluctant, unless it involved medical matters 
to suggest to others what they should do or what they might be interested in. Um, when she first came, she realized that as a woman, there was some acceptance and embrace, but there were other people who said, uh, how could a woman possibly be a good physician? And so she had to win those folks over uh, gradually. Uh, so I think once she had this this broad acceptance in the community, and as she grew older, uh, she would start to make her views known on, on certain matters that... Uh, she was reticent about in the early years. For example, when it came to deer hunting, most people who are alive today will tell you she was very much against deer hunting. Never against deer hunters, but against the act of deer yes, hunting. That and that she would uh, you know, confront people in the woods and tell them to go home. She would blow her horn uh, when she saw people hunting to uh, scare the deer. And uh, that's not something she was doing in 1928. Uh, so she sort of gradually, I think, uh, uh, became more uh, assertive over time in, in that regard. On the other hand, uh, she never was uh, overtly political uh, or partisan. And uh, even when uh, you know she might uh, scold somebody for hunting in the afternoon, and if that person called at midnight and said they needed help, she'd be there uh, in a matter of minutes. So... Uh, she was able to always, I think, uh, separate her professional practice from her, her personal beliefs. And at the same time, uh, she was certainly not afraid to say what she thought about certain, certain matters, like, like deer hunting. Or, you know, if people were snowmobiling, kids were doing things that were unsafe, uh, she would pull into their driveway and scold them and tell them to get into the house. Uh, there were some stories people told me about uh, kids being out on very, very cold days. And if she was going through in her four-wheel drive Jeep, she would stop and say, now you get inside. It's too cold to be out. Uh, so, But that was in the latter years. In, in the early years, uh, she had to be, I think, a bit a bit more gentle. Uh, and, and her motto was always just to, to give all that she possibly could to her, her patients, even if that meant, you know, going uh, through the day on two or three hours of sleep. Well, uh, some of the parts I just laughed out loud. Yeah. <laughs> you have one description of how she wasn't big on formalities. She wouldn't, um, you know, when she picked up the phone, she didn't say hello or goodbye. She, if somebody had something they needed, she'd just hang up the phone and she'd go. <laughs> Is that something you observed yourself as a kid? I mean, yes, that, I mean, yeah. I mean. Uh... And what happened with this idea that she burst into your house one day, telling your mother she was going to axe down the sign in the front yard? It was a for sale sign for your house did did she do that did your parents did your family move well what? yes so so my my mother uh, was working in albany at the time and, she, and my father wasn't well so she had to drive uh, each day from rensterville and that became quite onerous during the winter months so after five or six years of uh, doing that commute she said uh, i think we have to move as much as we love rensterville we have to move uh into town and so they moved uh into to delmar and uh Dr. Perkins, of course, liked having families in the village. And so uh, her way of saying that she was sad to see the for sale sign was to knock on the door and say, uh, I'm going to get my axe and chop that sign down. Uh, there, there were many, many sort of uh, interesting aspects to her, her personality. Uh, another person told me about her 
way of telling a person to stop smoking was to say, if God wanted you to smoke, he would have put a chimney on your head. So, you know, there there are many, many stories, more than I could include in the book, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So are are there things, you know, you knew her. Are there things that surprised you in your research that you didn't have an inkling of as someone who knew her growing up? I mean, were Yes, for sure. Um, And I I think the first, the book is divided into part one and part two. So it's it's pre-1928 and post-1928 when she arrived in uh, the Heldebergs. And I didn't know much of anything about that early period of her life up to her, up to age 29. Uh, She was born in 1899. So, you know, where her parents uh, raised her on, on Perkins Street. Uh, in, yeah, if it were a novel Jamaica and you Pond, just read the yeah. first half, you would never think the second half was coming. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just... Um, it, <laughs> and, uh, you know, then to, to see the kind of high school she went to, what, it was, what she was like uh, when she was in England, uh, all of that was brand new to me. And I think it's, it's new to most people yeah. because she just was uh, reluctant to, in a sort of New England style way to to say very much about herself or her her background, but that's the part to be honest that I found the most fascinating because uh, it really I think helped to provide an understanding of how she became the incredible woman that she she was and uh, what her father was like, what her mother was like. Um, what it was like to be in the household when uh, these powerful women from around Boston would come, uh, Amy Lowell smoking cigars in their parlor while she played the piano. You know, uh, these kinds of things really gave me a much richer sense of, of what her upbringing was, was like. And also, too, if you could talk about at the other end of the book, not the first half, these deep, deep, lifelong female friendships that she, they, that she had. Um, one with the doctor, whose name is Eskiti. Tausig. Right? Helen Tausig. Yeah, and one with Susan Langer. Just tell us a little about that. So these were uh, two women that she met while she was at Radcliffe. And uh, I think in the case of Helen Tausig, they acted on the stage together. Back in those days, men and women couldn't act on the stage together. So that when they put on productions in French or in English, uh, they would uh, play play different roles, and uh, the friendship ran very deep with Helen Tausig. They they traveled out to uh, California uh, for a semester. Uh, Tausig's father was a very prominent uh, economist at Harvard, and uh, according to Tausig's biography, she wanted to get away from the fame of her father, and so she went there, and then subsequently came back and went to medical school at Johns Hopkins, and. Uh, was instrumental, one of the most important people in the founding of the field of pediatric cardiology uh, and became the first uh, woman professor uh, of medicine at Johns Hopkins, I believe. And she left everything in her will to Dr. Perkins. Every penny went to to Dr. Perkins uh, later on. Uh, Suzanne Langer knew a bit more about this area because her family had a big house. Uh, They were a wealthy New York City family, a big house uh, up in Bolton Landing in Lake George. And uh, she had a cabin without any electricity or running water in uh, Ulster County in in the Catskills where she used to write. And so in terms of uh, the amount of of face-to-face contact, she saw uh, Suzanne Langer much more frequently 
and she saw uh, Helen Tausig. Both of them, though, were entirely different personalities, different beliefs. Uh, as, I, as I note in the book, uh, Suzanne Langer was an, an atheist, and uh, Dr. Perkins was a very devout Catholic. So uh, she had friendships with people who were very much different than she was, uh, but these endured for such a long period. And when Suzanne Langer was writing on uh, philosophical questions, really deep questions, and got stuck, she would take all of her note cards and her cello and hop in the station wagon, put her canoe on top of the station wagon, come over to Westerlo and spend several days usually talking with Dr. Perkins. Well, that's just a great scene in your book. Yeah. They have these index cards with ideas on them, and they stay up all night <laughs> shuffling their ideas. Yeah. And tell us also, too, about this wonderful little concert that they... Well, uh, classical music was always uh, something that I think was very important in the Perkins family, uh, going back generations. And uh, they had uh, been instrumental in starting the, the Boston Music Boston Symphony and the Boston Music Hall and all of these things. Uh, but uh, And Dr. Perkins' older brother, Francis, had studied classical music at Cambridge. Uh, now, And he became a critic. Right? He was the chief music critic for the New York Herald Tribune uh, for many years. Uh, but for, for Dr. Perkins, you know, one of the greatest treats was to uh, have uh, a, an opportunity to hear live classical music. So uh, Suzanne Langer was a very talented uh, cello player, and uh, Bob Diedrich was a self-taught organist. He, uh, in addition to running the store and being very active in the fire company and ambulance, used to uh, do uh, music for various churches uh, around the, the area uh, for their, as their Sunday organist. And so uh, Dr. Perkins would be the audience of one while Suzanne Langer and Bob performed various pieces for her after the patients had left probably at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. I just love that part yeah. of your book. I just love that. Well, and another thing we haven't touched on, we're kind of over our time, but I just want to get in, if you could talk a little about her love of nature. And she shared that with Susan Langer, but also just a little about that. That, I think, was something that was very profound and... Uh, consistent both with her spiritual beliefs as well as her the, the, the way in which she felt all life was sacred. And uh, maybe the best way I could sum that up would just be to tell this brief story that I got from uh, Ken Bryan in Rensterville. So he installed furnaces and heating systems and one day was in a basement of an old house and something flew into his ear. And no matter how hard he tried to get it out, it just kept fluttering around. So finally, he couldn't concentrate on his work. He took a chance, drove over to Westerlo, and Dr. Perkins was at home. And uh, no appointment, but, you know, she said, come in. And she got out uh, her tweezers and uh, reached in and was able to extract this small moth. And instead of crushing it or putting it in a tissue paper or something, she gently held it and walked to the door and released it so it could fly away. That's a great story. No That's charge to the patient. <laughs> so who should read this book? Well, um, gosh, I'd be gratified if, uh, you know, 
anyone from the Heldebergs would read it. I think many of her former patients uh, would certainly enjoy it. Uh, but even uh, young people who are sort of struggling with how to think about their their future life. And uh, there's certainly some important lessons there, I think, to be learned that way. Uh, I think it would be of great interest to uh, students of medicine and uh, certainly uh, Heldeberg history and, and pe- people who might be interested. Uh, I don't go into it in great depth, but in, in the history of feminism and how various waves of women had thought about uh, feminism and equality in, in different ways. Well, thank you. This has been you. really exciting. And thank you. Thank you. It's really great. Thanks for your support.